Thanks for pressing play. Most people prefer highly edited interviews. They like them cut up into, uh, if you will, quote unquote moments or sound bites and value bombs. And if you listen to most interviews, you can actually hear the edited cuts. And each cut is when um, uh, they are deciding what you should hear. But there are a few people who want to go deep, who care about the substantive, the authentic, and the different. And for those, nothing compares to a real dialogue podcast. Welcome to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are not for most people. We are a real, unedited dialogue podcast for business leaders with a different mind. Now, we are living at a time where I think the world needs breakthroughs more than ever. And those of us who want to develop the ability to see and create a different future have never been more in demand. But in order to do this, you know, we need models and frameworks and ideas and inspiration to help us create those breakthroughs in our own lives and our businesses. Uh, Professor Michael Wade's new book, Alien Thinking, blows open much needed research and insight in this regard. Now, ALIEN is an acronym that he and his co-authors came up with that stands for Attention, Levitation, Imagination, Experimentation, and navigation. <laughs> how do you like that? And we go deep on all of it. We look at how to see the world with fresh eyes, the power of different thinking, and how to navigate such that your breakthrough can actually come to life and so much more. Pay special attention to uh, Professor Wade's ideas around why lazy people are important and how knowledge is no longer a differentiator and what he thinks has replaced knowledge. Now, we're brought to you by my good friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to build a legendary foundation for your business. That's netsuite.com slash different. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And um, switching to organic flax milk from Malibu milk might be the uh, easiest, simplest, and tastiest thing that you can do for you. Visit Malibu Milk with a y.com today and check out lockhead.com and subscribe to category pirates it's sort of like harvard business review but for pirates now hey ho let's go My first question off the top, Professor, is how do you define a breakthrough? <laughs> this is a good question. I mean, uh, I, I, when we talk about breakthrough, we're not just talking about incremental change or just some kind of small improvement. We're talking about a step change or a large improvement, something that is new, hasn't been done before, that you know, takes people to a different level. And that's really what we're trying to crack in this book. And it's not just about, it's not just about having the idea, which is hard enough. It's about taking that idea and kind of bringing it through the process to become a breakthrough solution. And uh, I have my own theories and I've done a bunch of uh, reading and a little bit of writing myself on this topic. Um, but it's one I've been fascinated by pretty much since I was a little boy and, and I think will be forever. And so while the benefits of producing something exponential versus something incremental seem obvious to maybe uh, someone like you and me, 
not everybody thinks an exponential breakthrough is a great idea. And so why should people care about uh, an exponential breakthrough? Well, I, I think your your point is is a good one. Uh, when I'm not writing books about about innovation, you know, my day job, if if you will, Chris, is that I uh, you know I'm a professor, and and the focus of my of my work is on digital transformation. Uh, so this is what I spend most of my time doing is trying to understand disruption that's happening around you know digital tools and technologies, what's happening, and then how organizations can respond to those. And and I'll tell you what, there's a there's a lot of focus on the big disruptions that technologies can bring, but you can actually get a lot of benefits from small changes. You know, there's nothing wrong with incremental innovation. There's nothing wrong with small changes. You can, you can cut a lot of cost. You can, you can, um, uh, you know, increase speed. You can do things more effectively just by small incremental changes. Nothing wrong with that. You know, we're not, I'm not saying that anything incremental is bad or uncool. What we're doing in this book is trying to put that aside and say, yeah, that's really valuable. It's an important, but we're going to try and focus on the breakthrough stuff. Because if you don't have that, you end up just, you know, incrementally improving yourself, um, uh, not to death because you can do okay, but until somebody comes up with the next big thing and then you're, you're way behind. So we, we think it's pretty important to do both. You, you, you got to be incremental because that's where your, you know, your benefits come from today. Uh, but you also got to have one eye on on the long term future and trying to find that breakthrough innovation. Yes. So uh, how do we get the sort of mix of our thinking right? Because I, I certainly agree with you. Uh, I, I've been known to poo poo the incremental uh, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, I've been saying a lot lately, Professor. How now is no time to be focused on the incremental? But the truth is, you know, I say that uh, for effect. I say that to sort of tilt people's heads in the in a breakthrough exponential way, but of course, what you're saying is true. We might discover, you know, I I, I discovered one little thing in social media that was uh, a minor incremental breakthrough, but it was a breakthrough. And the simple one was, and um, my buddy um, Nicholas Cole taught me this. There's this weird thing where, as a podcaster, if you post on social media, the podcast with a click through to the episode, people view that as marketing. Mm-hmm. If you make a post, let's say I post your photo a day or two before this episode comes out. And I say, Hey, this awesome guy, professor Mike Wade's going to be on. And we talked about these incredible things. Just so you know, it's coming this week. People love it because I'm letting them know what's coming. Now. I don't know why that's fucking true. Mike. <laughs> that makes no sense to me. But it is the way that it is. And once he explained that to me, I had a, a nice incremental bump in social media results. So those, those little wins are great. Um, and of course, all businesses and careers are a function of both. But it seems that the exponential is a lot harder to get done. Yes, it is a lot harder to get done because we're not wired for it. We're not built for it. And, and, and so it takes, it takes, you know, extra effort and it takes a break from the way we think. It, 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 in many cases, we have to kind of, you know, challenge our assumptions about how things are done. And if we don't challenge them, we never make the breakthrough. Uh, and, and so we have lots of examples of, of, of that in the book. And, and we try to help people to understand how they can do it themselves. So then let's, um, 
you know, there's so much greatness in this book. So first of all, let me say to you, thank you for writing this book <laughs> because I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And it's, uh, I don't know how I got this job where people send me some of the greatest books that are being written in the modern era. But, you know, when I get a book like yours, it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is really awesome. Um, and so, you know, there's some very cool things. So right off the top, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and by the way, I got to thank you. I think great books are particularly business books are highly skimmable and they allow you to skim and then go dig deep. Mm-hmm. And you guys did a wonderful job making a, a great skimmable, skimmable book, which you can then dig into. And so, you know, right off the top, um, discovering the DNA of originality. So how do I discover the DNA of originality, Professor? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we try and break down what it means to, to, to do something original in, in, in an original way. We talked earlier about incremental and, and, and radical. So the incremental, okay, fine, you can do that. But if you want to be radical, then, uh, then it often requires being, being um, original. So one of the biggest things uh, that you need to do, and this is really linked to the title of the book. So the title of the book is Alien Thinking. So it's kind of a funny, it's, it's kind of funny, a funny name. Uh, but we picked it for, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the main reason is the metaphor of the alien. What we do, I think, every day is that, is that we kind of, we go through life and we, um, we don't really question things after a while. We sort of see, see things the same way. And so what we're challenging people to do when they read the book is, is, to, is to see the world like an alien. You imagine if an alien comes down, Chris, uh, they're going to see things for the very, very first time. They don't have any assumptions, any preconceived notions about the way things should work or have worked in the past. And, and, and so everything is new. Their, their senses are heightened. They're not you know, blinded by their, by, by their history. So a lot of what we talk about in the book is about, is about how to do that, how, how to regain that ability to see things in, in new ways with, with fresh eyes. And, and it's kind of a goofy term, but one of the things we talk about is, is um, what's the opposite of deja vu? So, <laughs> you know, deja vu, of course, if you define deja vu, I guess you define it as, as um, seeing something, then having this, this idea that I've seen that before, right? Uh, you see something, so I, I think I've seen that before somewhere. This is the idea of deja vu. So we, what happens if you turn that on your head when you're seeing something you see every day, but you see it as if you see it for the first time, right? In, in a completely new light. And, and that's kind of the first, I think, step of, of original thinking is to try and stop being a prisoner of your, of your assumptions and your thoughts and your history. It's fantastic. And it reminds me of a martial arts expression, which is aspire to have a white belt's mind. Right. So, so you're starting, right? You're starting out. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and you see this all the time where when you know how to fight, you get knocked out because somebody who doesn't know how to fight doesn't know, oh, well, you're not supposed to throw a jab that way. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite far side cartoons of all time was these two guys standing in front of horse-drawn carriages and the flaming arrows are landing around them and one's turning to the other and says, hey, they're lighting the arrows on fire. Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think there's lots and lots of good examples of that where we don't challenge our assumptions and then, uh, and th- and then, we, then we pay for it dearly. I mean, there's lots of examples. Let, let me give you an example because I, I think examples are good to illustrate 
what we mean. There, there's there's um, technology now. Uh, uh, you talked about the need to be innovative now more than ever, and I totally agree for, for a few reasons. One, of course, is the pandemic, and we can talk about that later because, you know, we are in a period where a lot of assumptions are being challenged. So those people and those organizations that are willing to challenge their assumptions are uh, getting benefits, dividends from that. And those that aren't, and there are plenty that aren't, are falling behind. But I think there's also uh, new technologies uh, that are available now that weren't available before that allow us to be more creative and more innovative. Um, so an example is, you know, I'm uh, I'm Canadian, Chris, uh, even though I live in Switzerland. I, I am too. You're Canadian as well, okay. Uh, and I, my home. And I saw is- you went to Western. My uh, my uh, former wife, who's still a very dear friend, is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario, and that's really? actually where I met her. I saw that in your bio, and I thought, I wonder if yeah. Mike's uh, the professor's a Canadian. You're certainly good looking enough to be Canadian. <laughs> Um, I, two of the, the authors of the book actually are, were, were, were Canadian. Um, anyway, my, my hometown is, is Toronto and, and, uh, of course we have a basketball team in Toronto, the Toronto Raptors, and they've been quite forward thinking about, about how they use technology. And one of the things they did was they, um, is, is they put sensors in, in the shirts of players, uh, to track on how they were moving. And now this happens quite a lot, but, but at one time this was relatively new. Still wasn't allowed in games, but they could do it in practices. And, and so they could see, after the fact, they could see what the players were doing. And they found something that was really surprising to them. They discovered that during simulated games, um, more than 70% of the time, the players were not moving forwards or sideways. They were moving backwards. So these players are spending a ton of time during games, actually moving backwards. So this is not something that they had ever really thought about or considered. Uh, they weren't do, running drills backwards. Uh, they weren't really spending a lot of time uh, strength training or muscle training muscle groups that you use to move backwards. And so when they got this insight, they said, well, maybe we should start doing those things. And when they did that, uh, they saw some benefits and the benefits were okay the, the 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 players were moving better backwards but one of the biggest benefits were was reduced injuries because you get a lot of when you when you're going backwards it's an unnatural movement for humans you know you roll your ankle or whatever so they actually got reduced injuries so, so the, the the season following that they had the fewest injuries of all the teams so you know and that's challenging the assumptions about about how things are done. And there's plenty of examples like that. And so one of the things I loved about your book is it triangulates to so much that I've learned over the years. And one of my favorite expressions is uh, frame it, name it, and claim it. And the idea being that the framing of something's actually more important than the thing. You know, another one I say I say to aspiring writers and podcasters and even marketeers is the context for your content matters more than your actual content. And there's an example that you used right at the beginning of the book. I think it was a drug company about, uh, sh- he says, shift their focus from containment of the virus mm. to observing the progression of the disease. Yeah. Maybe bring that story to life because I think it's a very powerful thing about shifting perspective. Yeah. I mean, this is the, one of the stories we use. Of course, there's, 
there's really famous, innovative people, uh, and, and we talk about some of those in the book. But we also try and find these examples that people haven't heard of, and this is one of them. And it's and it, it's a doctor uh, who is a, an infectious disease specialist, uh, and so he did a he did a term with Médecins Sans Frontières, so the Doctors Without Borders, and they sent him to the middle of a Ebola outbreak. And the thing is, he, he knew a lot about infectious diseases, but he knew nothing about Ebola. Uh, and there he was, and you know, he got there, and the, the WHO, which was managing these kind of field hospitals in these remote areas in Western Africa, you know, they had very strict guidelines about about what to do because it's a very, very dangerous, a horrible thing to get. So they wanted to protect the patients, they wanted to protect the physicians, and all that. So they had these really strict rules. Around, as you said, you know, you got to contain it first. And, to, and the thing was that, I mean, people were getting sick and they were dying. And, be, and, and because of that, they didn't want, you know, the locals didn't want to go to these field hospitals because they would, they would come back or not, you know, but, you know, often they would die. So the locals were, were avoiding them and, and infecting. It's like, hey, people. everybody who goes there doesn't come back. I don't want to go there. Not it's a great pretty simple idea, math, right? right? And it's scary. You look there, it's all these foreigners with these big, you know, kind of hazmat suits and whatever. And so it was a really scary place. And he came in. He didn't have that, you know, long history. He didn't have those preconceived notions. He hadn't been in other uh, locations that had, had Ebola outbreaks. So he had completely fresh eyes and, and he, came up with these great ideas uh, that, you know, ended up reducing the death rate like by 30, 40%. Uh, it was incredible differences just by the way they would treat the patients, the policies they would do, certain things they would, um, they would use their phones instead of going and, and talking to them directly, the patients. And, and so they ended up, actually, the, 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 the difference was so big that the WHO ended up rewriting their, their policies because of those insights. He was an alien in this case. If that alien hadn't gone in, it, you know, it, nothing probably would have changed. But I would say, Chris, you know, if you think about movies you watch with aliens in them, it usually doesn't end well for the alien, right? I mean, it's aliens are scary things. Uh, so being an alien can be a scary thing as well. It's much easier just to toe the line. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, and of course, you, your book's title. I have felt like an alien my entire life. And I mean, not to get overly uh, personal or emotional or, or too West Coasty on you, but it's fucking hard being an alien. It really is. It's hard being, uh, I'm sure you remember the sixth sense, right? Where it's like, well, how come I see all these dead people and no one else does, right? I've spent the vast majority of my professional life feeling that way, much less so today. But Yes, it's tough uh, being an outlier, being an alien. And so uh, those of us who are more naturally inclined to these kinds of mindsets, those of us who are more naturally inclined to saying, well, wait a minute, why is it the fucking way that it is? Who, who decided it had to be like this? What if it was a whole other way? Um, you know, some of us have, spent, have a lot of scars on our back from those. And so what advice would you give people who either are sort of naturally wired more this way or those who want to be more uh, naturally alien, uh, particularly around the downsides of it? No question. You're absolutely right. It's tough to be an alien. It's easy to get shot down uh, when you're an alien. And, and so many people, 
uh, resist their natural temptations to be creative and to innovative. You know, a lot of the focus of the book, because we're business school professors, is on is on organizations, what it's like to be in organizations. And most organizations have, you know, it, we're in the middle of a virus right now, right? Um, you know, these corporate immune systems that are very, very efficient at, at spitting out aliens and creative ideas and ways that challenge the orthodoxy. And you even have it, you know, a, a lot of people will say, if you're a company, you should hire people uh, with the same culture, right? You should hire for cultural fit. I mean, it sounds absolutely logical, right? You have a culture, you don't want to, you want to, the culture is a good thing. So you want to hire people with the same culture and you can teach them skills. The danger there is you end up with a monoculture and there's plenty of organizations that have monoculture. So our advice is, you know, if you're an organization, hire people who are who are not like you, right? Hire people who don't have the same culture with you, but make sure you don't, you know, you don't spit them out and give them a chance, right? Uh, uh, allow yourself to learn from them. But uh, let me get back to your question, Chris, because I think it, it, it's a good one. If you are one of these people, right, and, and you're navigating through life and it's tricky. Uh, the second reason, the first reason we used alien is because, you know, as an alien, you, you're going to see things with fresh eyes. But alien is also each letter stands for a stage, stands for a step along the way. And it, it, it feels like you spent a lot of time getting the acronym right. <laughs> <laughs> we did. It's been through a few iterations, I have to tell you. Uh, we're happy the way it landed. But yeah, it's it's been a long and winding road. But the N, the N is navigation. And, and, and this is all about uh, exactly what you said. It's, it, it's about trying to get those good ideas you know, accepted. And there are different ways you can do that. And, you know, language, for example, just to take a very practical example, language matters, right? Language matters. We, we, we have a couple of examples in the book of how great ideas were felled really because of the language used to promote them, right? So one example is, uh, is James Dyson. And you know that vacuum cleaner you see now with the, uh, like, like the little tornado in it? So that was developed by James Dyson, and he's become a billionaire and whatnot. Uh, but he had a real tough time selling that uh, to the big vacuum manufacturers. And part of the reason was because of, of, of the words he used to describe it. He called it a bagless vacuum cleaner. You know, come and check out my bagless vacuum cleaner. When you're a vac vacuum company, and, you know, it's the razor blade model, right? You're making, you know a huge proportion of your revenue and most of your profit on peripherals like bags, and somebody says, we're going to sell you a bagless vacuum cleaner, you're not necessarily totally open to that. And that's exactly what happened. So we ended up having to do it alone. A similar example is Kodak, right? Um, filmless photography was how the team inside of Kodak tried to sell their their innovation to the to the superiors in that company. And who is interested in film and photography when you make your money from selling film? So, you know, little things like that. Um, uh, also, I think if you're, if you're an alien, it's really good to be in submarine mode. We talk about that in the book, how to be in submarine mode to kind of fly under the radar, uh, for as, you know, for as long as you can, but not too long. And then when you come out, you know, understand the environment and as if you're an alien and try and blend in as much as you can, right? As you're, as you're kind of selling your idea. So there's a few tips and tricks that people can use to improve their chances of succeeding, even in a world that's very terrestrial. Yes. And one of my favorite expressions is, if you don't have a walkaway position, you don't have a position. And I find a lot of people in negotiations 
never think about what their walkaway position is. That is to say the minimum they, they're going to accept to do this thing, this X. And I'm reminded of Eric Yuan, the founder and CEO of Zoom. I know him casually. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. But his story is very illustrative in this regard because he was the head of engineering at WebEx. Yeah. And then WebEx went public. WebEx got acquired by Cisco. Um, is Cisco the sponsor of your professorship? Am I remembering <laughs> this right? Yeah, I do. I do have the Cisco, the Cisco chair in digital business transformation. Yeah, but it's okay. We're, I mean, I, I don't want to get you in any trouble. So I'm not on the payroll, <laughs> but, so don't worry about that. Okay. Well, as I'm sure you know the story, Eric had the idea for Zoom while he was still at WebEx Cisco. And, you know, they said, hey, just shut up and code. And he said, okay. And he's he's a way better, nicer human being than I am. So he didn't say it this way, of course. This is how I would have said it. He, you know, F you, I'm going to go do this on my own. He was nicer about it. but and, and the rest is history, of course. And so the other thing I would seek your counsel on, if I'm somebody who is in an existing organization and I'm committed to working on exponential alien thinking type projects, and I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this end part, this navigate part, because the more my idea, the more my prototype, the more my new category is viewed as uh, risky towards the revenue or market cap of the as-is business, the more the antibodies are, are going to reject the alien force, right? And right. So, so how do I sort of be in that submarine mode, but yet at the same time, I want to, I want to surface and how do I sort of deal with my own walkaway position in trying to get this done internally, but also knowing if I believe deeply in this, well, maybe I'm going to pull an Eric you on. How do you navigate those things in your head? You know, sometimes great, great um, innovators, they, they kind of st step on their own feet uh, when it comes to this. Uh, you know, I don't know uh, the full detail of the story of Zoom, but it may be that if if he had approached it slightly differently, then the people at WebEx would have seen the, uh, the the benefit of the idea. So understanding people's you know stakeholder management, understanding people's incentives, understanding where people want to go, and and reframing your idea in terms that people uh, people understand and appreciate as linking to their own objectives, of course, is very very important. Or if you can't do it, you know, get help to do it. There are, there are lots of people out there who may not be very innovative, but they're pretty pretty persuasive. So so getting some help, uh, even if you can't do it yourself. Also, I think that innovators can often fall in love with their ideas too quickly. So they have a great idea. We all you know we all have ideas. The great shower moments, and we kind of fall in love with our idea, and and then uh, and then we're resistant to changing it when people. When people criticize it, you know, you think, ah, oh, they don't know, you know, they, they, they have no idea. You know, my ideas, they just, they're, they're not smart enough to get it. So listening to, to criticism and, and taking that on board is really, really important. This is kind of the, uh, uh, the E part, right? The, the experimentation of, of the alien is, is not just to prove something, but it's also to improve something. So leveraging surprises is a huge part of, of the story. It's very rare, actually, that a that a final product is similar to the to the first prototype. So the you know great innovators, alien thinkers who are successful, uh, don't fall in love with their ideas too quickly. 
In fact, this I, I we, we had a, we had a conversation with Eric Schmidt from uh, 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 I think he's now the chairman, still the chairman of of, uh, of Alphabet, and this is what he said. He said, he said uh, you know, one of his biggest challenges when he was CEO of Google was to try and resist the temptation to fall in love with their products and their ideas because they were both great. But you can get too focused on what you do great, and you miss the next big thing coming along. And so this brings up an incredible point. I, I talk about this a lot as it relates to designing new categories, which is particularly in the beginning, being very thoughtful about who we listen to and who we don't. And one of the things I tell young marketers a lot, Professor, is uh, there's a lot of discussion today about, well, who's your avatar? Who's your, oh, well, we have a couple of avatars and you got, and you name them and one's named Sally and one's named Fred and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the personas of the avatars and all this stuff. And, and there's a lot of goodness in that. I, I'm probably sounding a little overly pejorative. However, that said, knowing who your anti avatar is, I believe is more important than knowing who your avatar is. Because most people, when presented with a breakthrough idea, don't accept it. You know, one of my favorite lines about this professor is before launching the category of bottled water, Evian did a taste test. 10 out of 10 people said it was water and 10 out of 10 of them said they wouldn't pay for it. Right. 10 out of 10 CIOs in 1998 said they'd never run a cloud app. Mark Benioff's one of the richest guys in the world. And, and, and you know, uh, 10 minutes ago, nobody wanted flax milk and now they can't keep it on the shelf. And so... How do we develop this radar for, I agree with you 100%, listening to the right people about product ID improvements or maybe go here, not there and all of that, because you're absolutely right. Uh, the prototype is not the final product. But at the same time, the worst thing an innovator entrepreneur can do is listen to the vast majority of the people who are going to say, nah, I'm never going to pay for bottled water. Right. True. Uh, true, especially in, in, in breakthrough. So I think their experimentation is extremely important. Test things out um, if you're not sure and and then learn and revise uh, your testing. You know, today there, there's lots and lots of tools available to help you to experiment quickly and cheaply. Uh, if it's digital, you can do A-B testing. You continually test and and see what things are working. So it's not these big, expensive long-term experiments you can you can experiment very very quickly but i think it's also you can increase the chances of of success by finding those new trends or recognizing those new trends before the majority of people do it's not like flax milk wasn't around uh or you know many the next big thing is here we just don't necessarily recognize it or see it and and so a in the alien framework, A is attention. It's about paying attention to the world around us, uh, but much more closely than, than, than we have in, in the past. And again, there's great digital tools to allow us to do this. You know, before, if you wanted to learn about a tribe, you know, you, you have to go and live with them for years, right? Now you just go on Reddit, <laughs> you know, these small Reddit subreddit oh, communities and you can you can see what anybody's talking about i mean you know you drive yourself crazy doing it but you can learn a lot about what's what the next wave of thinking or innovation is you can also i think try to be a little bit creative in who you speak to there's a good example we talk about in the book and it's uh it's about kellogg the breakfast 
food, well, the food company that also produces breakfast food. And one of the one of the the, the things that they produce is is snacks for kids that kids take to school and they and 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 they eat the snacks and and they were interested in understanding how they can improve the the, the snacks that kids eat and expand into maybe lunch items and and all the rest of it. So they knew they had to go and uh, interview people, stakeholders. So they talked to parents, uh, they talked to teachers. And they talked to the kids, uh, and, and they observed them, and they tried to learn about, about their behavior. And they just didn't get very far. As, as you said, you know, nobody said, I want an iPad, right? And so they're really getting nowhere until they started talking to the janitors. And it turns out that janitors know a heck of a lot about the, ha- the eating habits of children in schools. You know, they see what's eaten. And what's thrown away, they see the trading that goes on, uh, and and nobody, nobody asks their opinion, right? So, it's not only about finding these communities; it's also about asking the people who maybe you don't think about asking right off the bat. Yeah, my my friend uh, John Bielenberg, the legendary designer and author, he's always saying he's looking for the dog with the red hat. And what he means by that is that we're all very sophisticated at tuning out things and anything normal, anything predictable, we're sophisticated at tuning out. And so to, to have something stand out, um, it needs to be pretty, pretty remarkable. And so he's always looking for ways to find the dog with the red hat. <laughs> and by asking the janitors, that's clearly what they found, right? Yeah, it's it's looking at these unconventional and another another great example is lazy people. We can learn a lot from lazy people uh, uh, because they will cut corners uh, to make things go faster or make it easier. And, and and by cutting those corners, often they 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 complete a process faster or more efficiently or with less effort. That can really help you do things better. So yeah, it's embracing these other points of view, paying attention to the world, zooming in. To look at it more closely, zooming out to try and see the big picture, switching focus, talking to janitors, you know, uh, using technology uh, uh, to do this, um, all is a really, really important part of this innovation and creativity process that we describe in the book. Yeah, you're reminding me one of the newer categories I've heard of in this regard is from a company called Mobot, M-O-B-O-T. Mm-hmm. And um, they describe themselves as, quote, the original foam roller water bottle. And what they've done, Professor, is uh, exactly to your point around <laughs> around lazy people is uh, it was founded by a gal and she's into yoga and Pilates and whatever. And if you're an athletic type person like that, you want to be good about, quote unquote, hydrating. It's not called drinking water anymore. It's called hydrating. of sure. course. Yep. And she's like, well, I don't want to carry all this shit around. And so what if I made my water bottle, my foam roller, and I can carry one less thing. And, you know, you could call that lazy. You, you could call it, you know, wanting to kill two birds with one, whatever you want. But I, I love that insight because... How many times have you ever heard in business, pay attention to what the lazy people do? <laughs> never, right? You never hear it. And, and that's, that's a great example because, you know, it, it's addressing a need that nobody even knew they had, right? Uh, uh, the example used of Zoom, I mean, Zoom is a good example too. You know, it's cr- Zoom was crazy because there were already tons of, tons of uh, software, tons of solutions for exactly what it was trying to do, right? 
I mean, WebEx was around, but Teams and Skype and they're all around. Why do we need another one? And yet, you know, the team behind Zoom came up with basically a, a copycat product that was just so much easier to use. And so even in crowded marketplaces where you think, well, you know, why bother innovating around a water bottle? Uh, uh, it, it turns out if you can do it in a way that's just so much better or meets a need that's maybe a latent need, th there's a market. There's a market there. Yeah, I think you said something really important, a latent need. A mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is they attack with a head-on approach. Red Bull launches Red Bull Cola and says, Red Bull Cola tastes better than Coke, and they get crushed. Google launches Google Plus and says, Google Plus is better than Facebook, and they get crushed. When the Mobot gets created, they're a new thing. Yeah. This is, un, uh, this is an unmet need, right? And, and the thing that's interesting to me about Zoom is they used a technology wave, which was the mobile phone. They optimized for the phone. And by being phone first with, to your point, an incredible UX, they just crushed everybody else by redesigning the category around a new technology set. And so it's this, it's this, uh, distinction between better and different. And one of the things that drives me crazy that I've been really hoping to dig into you, uh, dig in with you, Professor, on is I hear this all the time. Oh, people don't like change. Nobody likes change. And to your point, when I look at what's happened over the last 12 months or so, receptivity to change seems very high to me, whether it's vaccines in our arms or flax milk in our cereal it would appear to me the receptivity to change has never been higher and um, that this notion that people don't like change is absolute bullshit. But I'm curious as to your reaction. I agree. I agree. I mean, uh, I, I don't think people are averse to change. Uh, they often don't, don't like to be changed, <laughs> uh, but they're not averse to change. It's institutions that are averse to change, I think more than anything else. So, so the institutions kind of beat the change out of you, but, but I think people are, naturally curious they're they're inquisitive they're naturally creative and innovative it's just you know was it george bernard shaw said you know we don't stop playing because we grow old we grow old because we stop playing right somehow life just beats it out of us you know uh, but yeah i i agree and uh, there's triggers for change and i think covid is one of those triggers so people are challenging assumptions all over the place you know the most obvious example is working from home a lot of companies and, and workers and people, employees, had the attitude that it's not really work unless it's in the office. And work, real work doesn't really get done at home. I mean, that assumption is dead, gone for most companies. So, so you know, it's a great time now to embrace that change. What, what's unfortunate is if, if individuals and organizations don't take advantage of that and they just go back to the way things were done before, uh, without trying to leverage what's different. You know, I, 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 Chris, I don't know what it's like where, where you are, but where I am, uh, restaurants are restricted. So, so you can't just go into a restaurant as you normally would, it's, you know, time restrictions and number of people in the restaurant, all because of the pandemic. And in many restaurants that, that I go into today, uh, you don't get a menu. I don't know if you've experienced this. You don't get a menu. What you get, you get a is, QR code, you get a QR code, right? So, so, Chris, when you go into a, a, a restaurant 
and there's a QR code to use your phone, right? What happens? What do you see on your phone? Well, the first thing I say is, where are my fucking glasses? (laughs) You can't see the the menu, right? (laughs) Well, you know, men of a certain age. But as soon as I find my glasses, I I think it's pretty cool. And... but what do you see? What shows up on the phone when, when, you, when, you, when you put the QR code up, up to the phone? What do you see? What pops a, up? A digital rendition of the menu, generally. Exactly. A digital rendition of the menu. This is such a missed opportunity. Well, I, I think you're going where I'm going, which is if I'm looking at your menu and I really think, man, that bolognese sounds awesome. Why don't I press a button? Is that where you're going? Absolutely. You know. It's, right. it's, very, it's very terrestrial thinking to say, you know, we can't show the menu, so no, let's, let's have people see the menu on their phones. We're done, right? But as you say, if, you, if you've got it on the phone, there's so many other things you could do. You could be showing pictures of the food, videos. You could be ordering the food, as you said, so you don't have to wait for the waiter. You could pay for the food. You could see reviews of the food from other diners. You could get suggestions of pairings. Uh, you know, starters, main courses or wines or whatever. You could link directly to the kitchen. You can make special requests. I mean, there's so many things that a restaurant could do. And yet, in most cases, you just get a PDF of the menu. Well, and the interesting thing about this, and, and you talk about this in your book, sort of how to see the future. Um, this is a great example where there's this technological change that is actually quite a breakthrough. It doesn't feel like one in the context of today, but if you roll the clock back 20 years ago, this idea of poking your phone at a thing that shows the menu is a pretty, would be pretty spectacular. But to your point, then you just go, okay, well, if we can do that, what else might we do? And it's fascinating how often that question does not get asked. It doesn't get asked. And it's the same thing working from home. And mo- many companies basically have the attitude, you know, you, you used to work in an office and now you're going to do the same stuff you're doing in an office. You're going to do it in your home office. That's working from home rather than thinking, well, we've got you in a different location. What else could we have you do? Uh, so doing different things. You know what it reminds me of? My buddy, Les Schmidt, who's a longtime senior executive in, in the tech industry here in Silicon Valley and CEO and so forth, he made a very interesting comment in this regard about podcasts. Because one of the things that drives me nuts, Professor, is most podcasts are just radio shows on the internet. And we don't have any of the restriction of radio. And right. yet podcasters accept the old paradigm. And one of the things that Les pointed out to me that I hadn't thought about was when the uh, movie camera was originally created, what did they do? They took those things and they put them in a theater and they taped a play. And it was only over time where they realized, hey, wait a minute, the technology allows for a new paradigm, what I would call a new category of storytelling. And then they be able. Then they started to actually use the technology. And so, in the first wave of any breakthrough, all we do is take the old thing and layer the technology next to it, i.e., vi- videotape a play, as opposed to make a movie. Or, in the case of the podcast example, hey, don't do a fucking radio show on the internet. Do use the medium. Ask yourself, what does this technology allow? And yet, this doesn't seem to happen very often, Professor. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's just the idea of breaking away from radio with pictures, right? Is the first is the first TV. I I I totally agree. You know, I'm 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 an educator. Uh, I work in a business school, so our world has been turned upside down from from having mostly face to face interactions with students. Now we have students, we have interactions through this, through through you know technology mediated learning, and the first thing we do is well, let's have you know. A, a two hour session with slides and, you know, we just basically lecture online. And then, you know, it took us a while to realize, wait a minute, we, we got so many other things we could do. We can have so much more interaction that, than we did, we could have before in a face to face environment. We could use the technology in, in many, many different ways. So learning is being, is being uh, disrupted. Well, it's interesting. Most people don't like school. And virtually everybody loves to learn. And it's, you know, we have a lot of professors who are authors on the podcast, and I feel incredibly grateful about that. And the interesting thing is, I think for most people, this medium with you is more effective for them than a traditional classroom. Because we get to hear your thinking, we bat the ball back and forth, uh, you say something, it leads over here, and then I say something, maybe it leads you over. And it's that experience of engaging, in this case, with a legendary business school prof who's written a provocative and interesting book. This experience of having a digital conversation, for many, is a lot more compelling than a traditional, uh, you stand there for an hour or an hour and a half and bark slides at me. I would, I would hope so. I don't do a lot of barking slides anymore, actually. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've kind of changed a lot in the last, in the last year of how I, how I educate. I, I think Chris, our, our education system, uh, is in a huge need of, of renewal. Um, somebody said to me the other day that knowledge was a 20th century differentiator. I thought it was a very powerful statement because, you know, when I went to school, it was about acquiring knowledge, right? You pack your head full of facts and figures and knowledge, and then you use that knowledge as a differentiator throughout your life. Uh, but we'll never know as much as Wikipedia or Google. So knowledge is no longer the same differentiating power. We have to differentiate in other, other ways. And yet our education system is still pumping content. And, you know, that's, that's a problem. You know, I, I think this whole idea, and we're getting off topic of the book, but I think it's an interesting area. Of, you know, you spend the first fifth of your life learning, and then you spend the next, you know, three fifths of your life doing, and then the, the last two fifths of your life chilling out, right? Or fifth of your life chilling out. You know, we got to turn that on its head. We got to turn that, we, you know, learning has got to be a lifelong thing. I think we should get into the workforce earlier, and I think we should spend more time learning as we're, as we're working. Amen. Hallelujah, professor. <laughs> and so if, um, knowledge is no longer a differentiator. It's a very provocative thing for a business school professor to say. What's the differentiator? It's how to acquire new knowledge, how to synthesize knowledge, how to analyze knowledge, and how to derive conclusions and insights from knowledge, and then how to communicate those. And those are, to me, much more important skills today than just having, uh, having the knowledge. And yet, we're not very good at teaching those things. And so let's maybe jump down this hole a little bit. Are you saying that thinking is more important than knowledge? Um, yes. I mean, of course, you, you can't get through life with no knowledge. You need knowledge and experience is valuable knowledge, applied knowledge. 
But I think, but thinking is more important than knowledge. Yes, because you don't need, you can outsource the, the, the knowing part these days. You don't need to know it in your head. All you need to do is to be able to access it on your phone. So you don't need to know it anymore. I don't need to know your phone number uh, because it's on my, not like I'm going to, you know, I don't, I don't call. Does anybody know anybody's phone (laughs) number anymore? (laughs) We don't need to know that. That's not knowledge that we need to know. We don't need to know facts and figures because they're at our fingertips. So knowledge is less important than it was, but thinking the synthesis of knowledge, the application of knowledge is more important than it's ever been. Hmm. Uh, well, uh, one of my favorite expressions is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. <laughs> you know, uh, let, uh, let me just jump off on that uh, in, in, into the into. I, I, I'm not sure if we've gone through all the letters of alien, but but I, I think we got through most of them. But there's one that we haven't, and that's the L. And the L is levitation, and and this is, I think, something that distinguishes our framework from some of the other innovation frameworks out there was i don't want to knock i mean they're all great but levitation is about stepping back and in a world where we're so you know we're so into the we're leaning in all the time we're busy you know think about how many meetings you have in a day uh, how many emails you get i mean we're constantly connected levitation is about stepping well don't forget the hustle porn stars who say never stop working Hustle, 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 never take the weekend off, all that bullshit. Well, we're saying take the weekend off because, you know, a lot of those insights come, but that synthesis of knowledge that we're talking about happens in quiet moments. And, you know, it's, it's the old thing. Amateurs push through, professionals take breaks, right? Because professionals know, uh, whether it's professional athletes or professional musicians or whatever, they know that the mind and the body needs time to kind of refresh and, 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 and reset. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, Dan Pink has talked about this, uh, in his work, you know, going for walks and, and, you know, reflecting, leaving your phone, uh, for an evening or, or, or a day. Why would we ever want to do that, professor? Leave our phone. That's sacrilege right there. Yeah, I have a tough time with it. I really struggle with it. But, you know, you, you're, there's science that suggests that a mind, quote, at rest, unquote, so you're not actively involved in some activity is actually more active than one that's focused on a, on a, on a challenging problem. And so you need to, to leave your, 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 your mind free to, to, to think and reflect. It's interesting we're on this. Do you know who uh, the author Michael Easter is by any chance? He's got this new book out called uh, The The Comfort Crisis. No, I don't know that. Anyway, we just had him on. He's a spectacular writer, and he did this expedition to um, the North Pole and really put himself in, in, a, in, in a super challenging place to kind of test his theories out. But one of the things he and I talked about that is fascinating on this is we're not bored anymore. Because the second we're bored, we pick up our phones, of course. So whether it's the grocery store, some of us are so mental, we can't even sit at a stoplight without seeing if we got new messages and shit, right? So we're never bored anymore. And when our mind is always engaged, our mind's always engaged. Yes. And, and, and so we talk in the book about the value of boredom, right? Uh, creativity is the residue of time wasted, right? This is, this is Einstein's quote. Can you just say that again, professor? <laughs> creativity is the residue of time wasted. 
Uh, it's a great quote. And, and I think so, so boredom, but also procrastination. Of course, you procrastinate too much is not good, but some procrastination is not a bad thing. If you force yourself to make decisions super quickly, you don't give your mind the chance to reflect and stretch and push and pull uh, uh, those ideas that you have. So it's okay to procrastinate as long as it's reasonable, which it, for, for me was, very, was, was a great insight to have because I'm a terrible <laughs> me too and i'm lazy as hell and i'm reminded one of my favorite artists is the country singer robert earl keen and he's got a song and the, the lyric in the chorus chorus is i kind of like this doing nothing it's something that i do <laughs> and it's kind of a celebration of just wasting your time now speaking of time um i don't i want to be respectful of yours professor are there other things you'd like to touch on before we wrap well there's you know, I, I, we tried to write the book in, in a way that's empowering, uh, suggesting that, you know, innovation and creativity, coming up with great ideas, translating into breakthrough solutions is not something for the elite. You know, it's not something of people that were born with it, you know, uh, and, and so if you weren't born with it, you know, tough luck. It's something that anybody can do, anybody. I, I think we all have that ability to be creative and be innovative deep inside us. It's just that, you know, life for many of us is beaten out of us. Uh, and, and so we have to relearn how to, how, how to do it. And, and, uh, you know, thinking like an alien is, 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 is one of those steps. So, and, you know, anybody, anybody has the power to, to come up with great ideas, uh, and, and translate it into a great solution. So, so it's an empowering message. Well, I couldn't agree more. And it, uh, like you highlight in the bo book, it often comes from the most unpredictable places and people, doesn't it? <laughs> um, ignorant of the current category and in industry, or ignorance of the current category and in industry is often a huge advantage. It is a lot of, a lot of breakthrough ideas come from outsiders. So, so, so the, the key is to try and be, be an insider, but think like an outsider. Yes. Well, Professor, it's been wonderful spending this time with you. I want to thank you so much for writing a, a spectacular book, and I think a book that is incredibly well-timed because, as we talked about, the receptivity to breakthrough is really high, and uh, I think the world needs people who are willing to embrace uh, alien thinking. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. I really enjoyed our conversation together. Thank you, brother. Come back anytime. My, my pleasure. All right, there he is, Professor Michael Wade, and the new book is out. It's called Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas. Pick up a copy wherever you get legendary books. And next up on Follow Your Different, Harvard Business School professor and author of a new legendary book called The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and Regain It. Professor Sandra Sulcher is going to be with us on the next episode. That's Professor Sandra Sulcher talking about the power of trust. Now, in times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to both survive and thrive in business. And that's where Oracle NetSuite comes in. See, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in. You can scale up, scale down, spin off, and adopt new business models on a dime whenever you need to. NetSuite's flexibility lets you do it all quickly and easily. You no longer have to be shackled by spreadsheets and QuickBooks. Today, you can embrace one complete business system in the cloud that is purpose-built for businesses like yours. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different.
Also, it is clearer now than maybe ever that anything can and will happen, sometimes in the blink of an eye. And so now more than ever, we need to be ready for everything, respond to every threat, and to seize every opportunity. And to be ready for everything, you have to bring data to everything. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Because today, more than ever, the data is the business. And Splunk is the leader in bringing data to everything, as in everything in your business. Every question, every decision, and every action. So that you can be ready for security uh, threats and ransom attacks, so that you can be ready to respond to your customers, ready to change and, and make new business models, ready to allow your people to work from anywhere and everywhere, and ready to respond to every question, every decision, and every action with data. Because legendary businesses bring data to everything. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E today. That's splunk.com slash D to E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary uh, Professor Michael Wade. Thank you so much, uh, Mike. It was a great conversation. Check out his new book, Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas. My friends at One Life Fully Lived are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, lifefullylived.org today. My friends at the Drop-In Coalition are making a difference for underserved youth in the Santa Cruz area, teaching them the, uh, the power of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, coupled with the joy of surfing. Check out Bottleneck. <laughs> Check out dropincoalition.org. Speaking of bottleneck, <laughs> they've been physically distancing before that was a thing. You see, bottleneck.online are the leaders in dedicated distant assistance. Check out bottleneck.online to scale you with a legendary assistant today. My friends at Atranet have been building a legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And my friends at squadcast.fm are the professional podcast platform we use. If you want to sound legendary in your podcast, check out squadcast.fm. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the number one organic flax milk. Great in cereal, great in coffee, great in smoothies, and white Russians. Malibu Milk might just be the simplest, easiest way for you to make a difference for yourself. Check out MalibuMilk.com today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. We are produced and edited by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Check it out, and don't forget to subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember, Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. The left lane is the passing lane. Please get out of the left-hand lane. Don't forget to think like an alien, not a moron. Listen to the Tragically Hit. Dr. King was right. Um, thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.